Um, so you will have to forgive me for that. Um, but I felt like I just wanted to keep going in our series here on harvest. Now this text of scripture that we're looking at today and the ones before it and the ones after are all about Jesus' teaching to the 12 apostles on the way in which he wants them to share their, to proclaim the kingdom, to share their faith with the world. And so for us as a church, this is a valuable text of scripture because we want to follow Jesus' commands. We want to participate with Jesus in his great mission to the world. But we want to do it in a way that looks and sounds like Jesus. Don't we? We do. And so I think as Canadian Christians especially, this actually is an uncomfortable topic for us. Because we generally believe that we should be as private as possible. And that we should hold ourselves back from ever giving our opinion on anything when it comes to religion or anything else for that matter. But what we see in this passage is a window into how to proclaim the good news of Jesus in a way that does not detract from the good news of Jesus. Respects the person that we're sharing the gospel with. Doesn't that sound like a helpful piece? (laughs) To know how to do it in a way, according to Jesus' instructions, in a way that honors the person that we're talking to. Values them and serves their agency, their individual choice of whether or not to believe. Okay? So what we see, though, is in this text of Scripture, Jesus is going to start by saying, I'm going to send out the twelve. So Jesus is the one initiating this going out into the world. He's the one that wants it. We need to know that for our own heart. Jesus is doing the sending. Jesus is the message and is the news, but he's the one initiating to his followers to say, I want you to go out into the world. And then it follows up, verse 5, that he instructs them. So there is some instructions for how to do this. Now, here's the way I think about evangelism for a lot of Christians. They have sought to do it without instructions, found it awkward, uncomfortable or unfruitful, and then gave up on it. It's kind of like the average man setting up an Ikea furniture. I don't need the instructions. But then it doesn't work. Now for me, I've just relegated all the Ikea assembly to my wife. I think a lot of Christian men have done the same when it comes to evangelism. How about you just do it? You're nicer. But here's the six fundamentals of Jesus' way of evangelism that we see in the following verses. The first is that we see he wants a public, personal faith to be proclaimed. That he wants it to be real help for real people, for real life. That he wants it to be done in a way that you freely receive the gospel, so you should freely give it, not require anything back to you. It should be non-anxious, should be transparent, should be respectful. And then we're going to talk about the last piece that where Jesus talks about judgment. So let's begin in verse 5. 
If you have your Bibles, you should open them up. There will be some stuff on the screen, but I think it's better for you to have your own Bible. So he begins here, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now this is an important verse. We're going to need it to be able to understand what Jesus is saying about Sodom and Gomorrah. So this is very important, so I just want you to kind of make a note of that. But what we see here is something we see all throughout the Gospels. Jesus' ministry consistently prioritizes Israel first. The rest of the world comes second. Now this isn't a rejection of the Samaritans. It's not a rejection of the Gentile world, which is everybody who is not part of Israel, including probably most of us. Instead, Jesus' priorities are about an, a progression of an unfolding of a plan. A plan that spans thousands of years and goes all the way back to Abraham. So Jesus is saying, now is the moment to proclaim that the promise that was given to Abraham and given to Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon that was proclaimed to Israel for all these thousands of years is now being fulfilled. We see why he would prioritize Israel. He's saying these are the ones that have received. That's what the Old Testament is. All of God's promises through their highs and lows saying I'm going to send a Savior. So now's the moment. So make it just about them. The plan though was always that Israel would be a blessing to the whole world. But Israel must be blessed first with the fulfillment of the promise in Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay? So this is why Jesus is prioritizing them. For us, I think it's helpful, not because the focus right now for the church in terms of our mission should be Israel. I don't actually think that's the point. But what's helpful for us as Canadian Christians is to recognize that the church needs to hear that this promise is being fulfilled. The church is full of Christians who fall into the categories that we looked at in previous weeks of being harassed and helpless. That they've heard a message about God without the Gospel. They've heard a message about God that God has created you, God expects things of you, you're failing God, and God is disappointed and mad at you. But without the Gospel, that God loves you, God has come to save you, and this is how the good news of Jesus changes everything. I've been in ministry now 20 years. And what's interesting for me is that I started out in ministry thinking that I was going to focus my life on proclaiming the gospel to the world. But what started to happen in the years of my ministry was Jesus starting to hone in for me and go, actually... The primary focus of your ministry in your life is going to be to evangelize Christians. Christians who think they know the gospel, think they're following the way, think that they're believing in me, but actually have no clue about who Jesus is, what Jesus has accomplished, and how it works. And my experience is, 
Eight out of ten Christians that I sit with and meet with, we start together, is that they don't know how the gospel works. They don't know how Jesus actually helps their biggest problems. And so that's a big emphasis of our church. That these are the lost sheep. Those who know of God, they've heard the scriptures, they've grown up in the church, but they don't actually know the gospel. And they don't know how to believe in it for salvation. Really, what they believe in is something called a therapeutic, moralistic deism. A God that's out there that wants to comfort and help them, but expects them to just have high morals in order to deserve it. That's more the general picture of God that the average Christian holds. On the other side, the other lost sheep of our world are atheists and agnostics, that have gotten more religion without gospel. They've seen how the church works, and they've seen how God is represented, and they don't actually see help or change or hope in that. It just seems like a dysfunctional system. But they too are missing out on how good and beautiful the good news of Jesus is. But these are the lost sheep. These are the people that Jesus is prioritizing, saying those who think they know what God wants of them, think they know who God is, but they haven't even begun to explore how good and beautiful he is as revealed in Jesus. So this is who Jesus wants them to focus on. Now verse 7, he goes on. I want you to proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What he wants is a public, personal faith. He wants them to go out and to proclaim what they found in him. Now, we have to be honest about something. The only way the average Canadian Christian is going to embrace this call as a herald, not that herald, herald with an E. How do you spell your name? H-A-R, okay, that's right. H-E-R-A-L-D is the herald we want to be. That's a good herald, too. You can be like that herald, too. <laughs> but the only way we're going to become these kind of public, like willing to publicly say, I have found the answer to everything. I have found the way that works. The kingdom of God is at hand in Jesus. The only way we're going to do that is through a deeply personal and experiential faith that produces that confidence. What I mean by that is this. The only way the average Canadian becomes authentically public about their faith is when their private life has been absolutely transformed by how good Jesus is. I think that's the honest truth. It, now, what happens when you see an individual who's super public about their faith, but it, it can come across as forced, or it can come across as a facade, or it can come across as like rote, like it's a script. Have you ever seen that? Mm-hmm. The way that Jesus is, is providing a vision here is more about somebody going, I've tasted and I've seen it, and I have to tell you. That kind of conviction. I've seen the facts. I've encountered the evidence. I've tasted it, experienced it, and I'm changed by it. And I think this is the authentic witness of our church. 
We're heralding the good news. It's both empirical in the fact that it's like, this is historical fact, and there's 2,000 years to back it up to go, this changes human lives. It's an event that has taken place. But also, we're convinced of its merit in our own individual lives. That's, I think, a true, beautiful evangelistic message. It's empirical. It's bigger than me. It's more than me. But also, it's happened to me. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Yeah. Because what the message is that Jesus is saying to proclaim is, God's kingdom has invaded earth. The kingdom which is eternal and triumphant over evil and void of death has come to save our world that is overrun by evil, suffering in sickness, and being tortured by the prospect of death. The kingdom comes and extends a hand, reaching for you. And it's the hand of its king. It's deeply personal. And it's saying the kingdom is here, it is at hand, and it's available to any and all who wish to accept it. So that's how we view it. God reaching a hand toward the world in gospel in good news, saying, I've come to save and destroy evil. And faith looks like saying, I accept. That's the human heart. I accept. And laying hold of that hand. I heard an interesting story this week at a gathering of clergy from Pender Island. Uh, a local Anglican missionary that's working with us had a Buddhist woman show up at church one Sunday because she said she had been meditating and was asking for a spirit guide to come and guide her in her spiritual journey. The guide that appeared to her was Jesus, saying, join my work. That was his invitation to her. And she was deeply disappointed. She's like, I was hope her, her language was, I was hoping for someone cooler. <laughs> And so she was disappointed because of this, but then went to church that Sunday anyway to go. I asked for it, and he showed up. What is Jesus' work? And so she's starting this journey of trying to discover the way of Jesus. Jesus is at work in the world, extending himself, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the hungry have ears to hear it, are looking for it, and ready to receive it. Now, here's what Jesus says next. To show the nature of his kingdom, Jesus instructs them to do a few things. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. That's all the easy stuff. So we'll just move on to verse 9. Right? But this is the nature of the kingdom. What Jesus is communicating here is the places that people are struggling most are the, people, are the places on which I want you to showcase that this works. Think of those categories. Heal the sick. Those who are exhausted and beat down by the brokenness of this world. That this world, there's something wrong in this world and it's attacking you. We could tell by the empty seats today, there's so many people who are sick, called in, needing prayer. Some have COVID. But this... The reality of our life is that it's exhausting and it's hard and there's brokenness in this world. And then he goes on to say, raise the dead. 
resurrect those who have been destroyed. Those who have been conquered by death. So this is how Jesus trains the apostles in the step ones of how to do his mission. I want you to go proclaim it, and then I want you to show it. So find the darkest places, and what he's asking them to do is to speak his name in those places. Cast out the demons, the places where people are tortured and oppressed with dark and negative and terrible things. Redeem them with my name from these oppressors. Because the main point when you look at these categories is there's nothing and no one that cannot be saved by the coming of his kingdom. Because these categories are the people that couldn't be helped by the religious system. These are all the people who are on the edges because they didn't have a solution to this problem. But Jesus is coming in and saying, I'm major on the edges. In the darkest places, I'm best. So the question that comes up, though, is how are the disciples to have this power since Jesus has not yet been glorified in his ascension? And the Spirit has not been given. John Chrysostom, a great father, patristic father of the faith, he says, they did this by his own command, by the Son's authority. So the name of Jesus is powerful enough to bring about salvation to those in the darkest places. To preach the gospel there to those who are in hardship and pain and struggling is power enough to begin to change. Change the circumstances. Change the problem. Bring about new life. And even in this case, he's saying to resurrect the dead. That's wild. So this ministry, though, has, with these kind of glorious, miraculous elements, also has some borders, some some areas that we need to be careful of, some limitations. So even though you're going to proclaim the kingdom and you're going to walk in the power and the grace of the kingdom, I also want you to understand you cannot exploit the kingdom. So he goes on, freely you received, freely you give. You received without pain, give without pain. That's essentially what he said. You received the gospel. Did you earn it? Did you buy it? Did you purchase it? What's the answer to that? No. No. How did you receive it? freely, through God's generosity. In the same way, do not exact a price from those you are giving it to. So we look at our Americanized Christianity and we see these great evangelists who require all this money and private planes and Bentleys and Louis Vuitton suits. I say this in all humility as far as I can. Jesus is coming for that. Jesus does not take that stuff lightly. And that stuff is atrocious to the gospel. Absolutely atrocious. Jesus is saying here, give it away as free. Require nothing. The whole point is it's a free gift of salvation. Now, here's the thing I think we also should watch for. What other currencies do we tend to hope to collect. Acceptance, affirmation, promotions, power, political influence, respect in the culture. None of these things should we hope to get through our evangelism, through our mission. 
Because it's all about the free gift of grace. So what it does is it helps us go, okay, i got to check my motivations for this. Right? So this whole movement, I think, in evangelicalism that says if we get political power and influence, that's the goal. That's why we share the gospel. We want enough people to buy into this that we would have power and influence. That's not the point. The point is, is that the kingdom would come and save. So then he goes on. Not only should you not accept gifts or not seek to get things from them as payment. Verse 9, I also want you to be non-anxious. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. So don't stock up on your provisions. No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. Evangelism can, cannot and should not be done for any selfish gain or significance. But not only that, the disciples are not only to expect no payment, they're actually meant to intentionally embrace a practical posture of neediness or weakness. So take none of these provisions, and this isn't always the case. We see in later times Jesus sends out 72, and this time he says you can take some food, you can take some money, you can take an extra cloak. But in this instance, Jesus is putting limitations on it for a purpose. Because he, it's going to be a labor. It's going to make you tired. It's going to make you hungry. You're going to be subject to the elements. And here's what it's going to do. It's going to necessitate incarnation. Mutuality. Relationship. You're going to go the same way that Jesus has come. He foregoes all of heavenly provisions in order to come in weakness to enter into the problem with the people. Jesus wants the disciples to do the same thing. And here's what it does. Multiple times, even here, even when I was moving to the island, I had all these plans. I'm going to sell my house at this price. It's going to give me enough money, and I'll be able to come in and be self-sufficient Maybe the church won't even have to pay me, and I'll just take care of myself. And I had delusions of grandeur. Okay? <laughs> None of those things panned out at all. And what it does, though, is it puts you into a state of humility, one, because you're not coming in in strength. You're actually coming in humble, lowly. You don't have a lot of power. You don't have a lot of strength. You don't have a lot of wow factor. You're just some bloke preaching the gospel. It's not all that captivating all the time. But part of what it does is it puts you into the state in need of grace. So when you're weak and when you're humble, when you're needy, what do you depend on? You depend on Christ. Instead of coming in in a self-provision or strength, it's coming in a different way. But the goal here is to come in open to and ready for relationship. Right? Versus like coming in and saying, I'm completely self-sufficient and separate from you. I'll pop in, tell you the gospel, pop out to my comfort. Right? Kind of like some superstar that would come in. He's saying, no, you come right in with the people. Back in Alberta, we had uh, a big influx of refugees 
who were Nepalese-speaking Bhutanese people. So Nepal had kicked them out. They were originally from Bhutan and had kicked them out of the country and were refugees, so they were all coming to Alberta. And one of the things we learned right away is when we're going to visit them in their homes, you do not eat lunch beforehand. Because when you show up, there's going to be like a 20-course meal. And so much food. And I made the mistake of eating in advance a few times, so I'm going in full, and they're like, here, have more, here, have more. My face is on fire, my mouth is on fire, the hottest food I've ever had in my life, and there's no room to get it down. And because I'm big, they've got high expectations for how much food I should be eating. And so there are times like I went away and was like, I'm going to vomit. Um, but part of what you learn in advance is that the meal, the eating together, is the mingling of souls. It's the coming together in relationship, a friendship. It's as valuable, if not more, as the words that are being spoken. Jesus is saying, if you have none of those provisions with you, you're primed, ready, and needing what? Relationship. That that's the goal. So verse 11, he kind of goes on with this same idea, but watch how it continues. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. So first let's answer this question. Who's worthy to receive the kingdom? Right? We don't use that language. Go into the town and find the person who's worthy. So let me ask you this. How do you gauge worthiness? Don't answer it. Just think about it for a second. How do you gauge that? Now, what we know from Jesus, the way he teaches, his worthiness sounds like this. I'll change the language a little bit. Worthy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Worthy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Worthy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That's how Jesus describes who he thinks is worthy of the kingdom. Are we looking for the worthy, or are we pining after the self-assured, the rich, the successful? Are we looking more for cultural acceptance than we are actually looking for who's ready for the kingdom? Jesus is saying, stay with the spiritually worthy. And not only stay with them, but live with them. Don't move on to a cushier relationship that offers false promises of comfort. Stay with the person who is initially worthy. Don't level up. People aren't a means to an end. People are the end of the gospel. That's that's who he's going after. Because the saved people glorify God. So the picture here, the vision is then, let them witness the real you in relationship and the authenticity of the kingdom in you, in that relationship. So what they get is a heavenly message of God's salvation in a human package, which is you, which sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Now, as you enter the house, he says, verse 12, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. So here's where Jesus starts to get into. When you come into this home and you're starting to share the gospel, what you first do is you actually speak shalom. This is the Jewish practice. Peace be to you. 
That's the initial greeting. I come in peace. And if they hear the message, and when given the offer of the kingdom, they reject it, proving themselves unworthy, he's saying, you can leave. But here's part of what that communicates, and I think this is the Canadian fear. When sharing the good news of the gospel, don't push it. Don't force it. And don't fight for it. I've been with individuals who are seeking to do evangelism, and that's actually their real goal, to be as confrontational as possible. They're defensive, they're angry, they're explosive, and I think they defame the name of Jesus and the goodness of the gospel. Here Jesus is saying, respect them. Respect the person. Hear what they're saying to you. As people, we are intuitive. We read body language. We hear people. We can, hopefully, we can catch the vibe of the moment. Some of y'all struggle with that. We'll talk about that another time. But read the room, Jesus is saying, and respect the room. If they're not interested then respect it, honor it, because they're meant to. Their heart is meant to weigh the gospel and make a decision. So we respect it, we don't force it. And the the truth is the same with our kids as they grow up in the faith. But we'll talk about that another time too. But here's what we see. Many followers of the law of Moses would have admired Jesus when he comes in, preaching, healing, doing all this stuff. So at this point, they like who Jesus is. He's captivating. He's interesting. There's a lot going on here. But when faced with the realities of the gospel, like humility and weakness and confession and repentance, they suddenly find themselves uninterested or even resistant, just as they were with John the Baptist. That's what Jesus is preparing them for is that the religious people love the idea of Jesus, but when faced with the reality of how to receive Jesus, which is to be honest about your mess, confess it and be truthful about it, and honestly repent, see your need for a Savior, that you can't save yourself or change yourself or be good enough to achieve God's favor. Something's wrong that needs an intervention. The religious don't like it. Because the religious go, actually, my religious observances and my spiritual practices and my functions on the church council, all of it make me feel pretty self-assured, actually. And you want to talk about my sinfulness? You want me to repent of my mess at home and how angry I am there and how I struggle with unforgiveness? I think I like my system better. (laughs) That's what's happening here in this moment. And Jesus is saying, if they do that, hear them. Respect it. Don't push it. In my early years in ministry, I struggled so much with that because those are the people that are often running the church. And I wanted their approval. And I wanted their acceptance. I wanted Because I was a young pastor. But as time has gone on, years and years in the church of preaching the gospel... I think more and more and more I find myself going, no, I'm hearing you correctly. You don't want this. You claim to follow Jesus, but you don't want the gospel. 
And Jesus, I think, in this text is going, believe them. Believe them when they show you that. Because the message of the disciples is going to be this. Become like a child. We invite you to come like a child and receive God and his salvation. And the devout Pharisee says, I have no need for that. I'm already mature. So verse 14, this is what Jesus says to do. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. The cultural significance of this act is this is the very action that someone from Israel would do when they leave a town of the Gentiles or the Samaritans. They walk out and they... Oh, I forgot about my mic. Sorry about that. They shake the dust off their clothes because they want to carry nothing of it with them. They're saying, I want no part of this. It is a bit of an act of judgment in their case. But here's what happened. Jesus is sending them with the gospel of grace, and when they reject it, they end up getting the judgments they've been giving to the Gentile world. He's saying, if they refuse this message of grace, after all of these years of promising it to them, when it's in their midst and they don't want it, shake it off. I'm really trying to resist Taylor Swift's songs at this point. That's for you, Lexi. But essentially he's saying, don't carry it with you. Don't take on responsibility for that which others should be responsible for. Their rejection of the kingdom is not a reflection of the goodness of the kingdom or of you as a herald or messenger. And I think we often feel that way. We come away going, somehow this is my personal failure. Or maybe the gospel isn't good. But Jesus is saying, no, make them responsible for what they're responsible for. Shake it off because you've done your part and respect that they alone are responsible for their choices. And then Jesus tags on this hammer of a statement. (laughs) Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Jesus is saying that he will judge the so-called people of God who reject his gospel with more intensity than he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. This is why the first verse of this section is so important. This language is specifically reserved for the religious. His judgment of them will make his punishment of Sodom and Gomorrah feel like a kindness, he's saying. So when we look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's why the Ezekiel reading that we did earlier is so helpful. Here's how we understand their sin. Let me read it to you again. Ezekiel 16, 49-50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. You ever heard that before? They were haughty. Haughty. And did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. This is God's righteous, holy prerogative. When dealing with evil in the world that hurts people and destroys his creation and defames God's goodness, he has the right to act and destroy evil. The great sadness of our time is when people 
hold to, cling to, remain beholden to that evil and are judged and destroyed with it. That's the great sadness of the Bible. Is God is saying, I need to destroy evil. Evil is destroying humanity. And humanity says, but we're on the side of evil. That's the great grief of the scriptures. Interestingly enough, a couple weeks ago, a big archaeological study came out about this region where Sodom and Gomorrah was thought to have been situated. It's called Tal El Hammam now. But historically, it was once a thriving city, existed around 3,600 years ago, and was more significant in size and power than Jerusalem or Jericho. However, its sudden disappearance in history has been an archaeological puzzle. Trying to solve it without scripture. You're trying to go, where did this city go? There's no wars to mark it. There's nothing in the lineages. It's just gone. But recent discoveries show extreme heating in the area. Essentially, they think an asteroid struck near the city. Because what they found is skeletal remains, pottery fragments, all at the site, with heat damage. And the heat damage has that specific trinitite, that glassy-type substance that you get when an atomic bomb goes off in a desert. So the presence of the trinitite adds to the weight to the theory that a high-energy event took place. But what they found is human skeletons, they're essentially cut off at the waist and burned at the stump. But the top half of the body was just incinerated. And so they're finding this today. But here's what Jesus is getting at, is that we, that kind of stands up in the Old Testament as like the biggest act of God's righteous judgment on evil and humanity. But Jesus is saying here, to those who hold to systems of religion that add to the harassment and the helplessness of people, and don't lead them to the good news of salvation, Sodom and Gomorrah is nothing compared to the response to the pure anger that God feels towards a religion that leads away from the good news instead of to it. That's heavy stuff. Mm -hmm. But when we think about people investing their hearts into religious systems and spiritual things, they're coming to it with desperate needs and pain and sorrow and hardship. And if the response of the religion is, do these things, work harder, be better, earn your salvation, what an atrocity that is. And God is saying to the helpless, to the harassed, to the hurting, to the broken, I offer you salvation at my expense, born of my love, to save you as a free gift, to restore you, to dignify you, to make you whole for eternity. That's the offer. And when that's rejected in favor of the religious system, then God is saying, I respect your choice. But your choice has consequences. Because I'm going to eradicate that evil. So what we end up with at the end of this is a vision for evangelism within the church that looks like this. A public, personal faith that says grace has come. 
that's real help for real life and real people. For those who are soft-hearted enough to receive it. And it's given freely. We expect nothing of you. There's no cost. We're just saying enjoy it. And we're non-anxious about it. There's no pressure from us. We don't need you to accept it for us to feel loved. We genuinely want you to know that you are loved in the Gospel and we love you too. That comes out in our transparency. But we respect your decision. We respect it. But boy, will we grieve the consequences of it. But that's... That's my ministry in the church. Is that I meet with people consistently and offer them the gospel and the soft-hearted take it, eat it, enjoy it. And the hard-hearted say, I prefer my religious system. I'd rather do that. And to that we say, we respect that. But what's offered by Jesus is a way that works. A salvation that's true. A grace that's given for the lowly and the broken. And here's the beauty of it. It's, we see it in the fact that Jesus is sending out the apostles and Jesus wants to send out his church. Is that we're truly saved from all the pains and the horrors of sin and death and evil when we're living authentically, publicly, and confidently. We're no longer victims. We're no longer oppressed. We're no longer harassed and helpless. We're alive in this world and on the cause of goodness. And we're living openly and confidently about Jesus because we were once broken and, and, and harassed and helpless, but he's brought us out of it. And he's brought us into life because the way of Jesus was. So for us, I think it leads us to a place, again, always, to go, where do I land in this? Do I believe? Or do I prefer a religious system? Do I trust in grace? Or am I going to work my way out of my messes? Do I want to be on the side of true goodness and love? Or am I banding my, my, am I wearing the colors of evil that contribute to the harm and the hurt and the table is where we have an opportunity to make that choice afresh. So if you're comfortable with it, close your eyes for a moment of personal reflection.